Our scripture from Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land that shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord, six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also and for the wild animals in your land. All its yield shall be for food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship. Before we breathe in and out, take a moment of prayer for reflection over this text. I heard today on the news, or as I read the paper this morning, that 17 American Christians had been kidnapped in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, by some uh, gang lords. And I just think we ought to think about that and lift that up in prayer. We should always be lifting up the island of Haiti and, well, the whole island of Hispaniola up in our prayers. We have many missionary friends that work there. They've suffered mighty, mighty poverty. They suffered mighty hurricanes. And those people are in great need. And under political turmoil. But as we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are there trying to do good work to be taken, uh, even to have children taken, it is something that causes great concern to the fellowship of the saints. So we're going to offer a brief prayer for this, and then we're going to breathe and pray once more that the Spirit of God would speak to us through this text this morning. Let us pray. God, for Christians everywhere, we ask for safety in their work. We ask for a resolution to come to pass in Haiti when it comes to these 17 that have been taken captive. We lift up the whole island of Hispaniola to you that it would receive peace, both political and environmental, that they would have a bounty of food to eat and good life to live. Intervene with your Holy Spirit there. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. And to prepare our spirits and our hearts, let us Take the moment to do the exercise of just exhaling all the air from our lungs so that the next breath in, we sense the breath of God. Exhale. Inhale the breath of God. Holy Spirit, be with us now in this very hour for you, and I know that without you I can do nothing. We confess that we don't turn to your scriptures in Leviticus enough, and we ask that you use your Holy Spirit to use these words to shape our imagination freshly and anew. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, and God's people everywhere say, Amen, Amen. In our former home here in Atlanta, we lived nestled in a very, very timbered and wooded area. As you entered into the neighborhood, it was basically just woods for several acres and a small creek. One day, we were driving down this 
road from our house out to the main road, and you could see what was going on on top of the hill. Developers were clear-cutting it, taking down all the timber. Marcella was so upset. She was a toddler at the time, or a little older. She'd say, they're taking down all those twees. Somebody should put up a sign on that twee right there that says, man's, stop it, man's. I giggled because of how she spoke, but what she said touched me. She was simply bothered by the absence of the trees and by the life that would be leaving this little sanctuary. In fact, in the neighborhood, for weeks after, I would see large buck and large does running through the neighborhood because they had lost their home. Now, when you drive by, there are 500,000 and up priced condos overlooking the beginning of Buford Highway. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I'll leave it for you to decide what development is good and what is not good, or how much of it we need and where and why. But I think most of us would probably stop short and talk about whose property it is in the first place. You see, we often think about land in terms of property. Today, I want to talk to you about the land in theological terms. And I submit to you, you won't hear most pastors today or television preachers talk about this, but I think the concept of land is absolutely central and important to the Bible. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God speaks to a nomadic man who he has chosen to bring about his good community through, named Abram, later Abraham. And in that section of Genesis, we have the great Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abram, I promise to make you a great nation of people. You will possess a land. He was nomadic, mind you. You will possess a land, and I will make you a blessing to the entire world. And from there you have this concept of a land for God's covenant people to call home. Elsewhere it's called the land flowing with milk and honey. That's a symbolic way of speaking about how much it will yield for the people to subsist and live on. This land is promised. Later it's entered into, and the people of God, as they enter into it, receive vineyards and fields they didn't plant. There they are supposed to have a home, a home that will take care of their needs. Typically, we think about the relationship the people of God have with God as a covenant, which is kind of a legal language for an agreement. God says, I want you to be my people and live these ways. The people of God say, we will do those things. And he says, okay, let's agree upon this. But I submit to you that in the Old Testament, the covenant is not a two-way direction. It's more like a triangle. God sits atop, offering the covenant between not only a people but the land, and you have this sort of triangular set of relationships. It's not simply the case that God cares about what a human community does. God seems to, all throughout the Old Testament, care about how the, this community of people engage in the land and how they treat the land. Whenever you read that word land, I also want you to expand the imagination beyond just a patch of soil and perhaps some grass and maybe some shrubs. There's a, a word for it. It's a, 
It's a grammatical word. If I'm not mistaken, it's a metonym. A metonym. It means that something is being stated like land to describe many other parts. I was scrolling through the radio yesterday on a drive back from South Carolina, and I heard someone on the radio say, the White House says. Now, we know this intuitively, but we actually have to think about it more intently when we talk about the Bible and land. See, intuitively, you and I know that the White House is not an organism with eyes and a mouth, that the White House didn't open its mouth at the front door and begin bellowing out things. But rather, the White House is symbolic of an institution of systems that work together. And when you say the White House says what it's really saying is that the administration, the current administration, is issuing forth these ideas, right? When you say the word land in the Old Testament, I want you to think very much the same thing. Yeah, it's a patch of soil, perhaps. Maybe there's geographical boundaries. But it means everything that lives upon it, from trees and flowers to waters to fish to the birds to the cattle. And here in Leviticus, we hear God tell Moses, I want you to give the land its Sabbath. Every six years, on the seventh year, I want you to give the land its rest. Don't work the land, and what's more, don't work the animals. Let it have a sabbatical year. All creatures in God's land were meant to have time for rest. A couple weeks ago, we talked about that creation story at the beginning of Genesis where each day anticipates the Sabbath day, and that day is about divine delight and rest. Here in Leviticus, we get a picture of the heart of God for more than just a human community, but the human community in the land, the land too, and all of it, needs to participate in the divine rest of God. There's the command. Every seven, seventh year, stop working it. Let it grow healthy. Let it rest. Let it rebound from six years of work and labor. And if you just turn your Bible over one page, you will see a warning. God says to the people of God, if you don't do these things, I will remove you from the land, and it will have all the Sabbaths that you never let it have while you were in the land. You see, the land is part of this covenant, too. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning and any time we look at a book like Leviticus, is, is this just Old Testament law that no longer applies to us? You know the laws I'm talking about, right? You can't wear two different garments that don't match, two different materials. Christians have decided that doesn't apply. There's a whole host of reasons why. There's that one Old Testament law that says don't boil your, a kid in his mother's milk. And today you can find people who observe that by not eating turkey and cheese sandwiches, cheese and turkey together. Christians and others have decided that doesn't apply anymore and for a whole host of reasons. But does this fall into that category or is this something timeless? And let me suggest to you that to me, as I understand it, it is timeless. That the teaching about allowing the land itself to have its Sabbath hides within it a principle of all creation. It hides within it the purpose of human life. 
to live in such a way as to make all things flourish. You see, creation isn't simply the beginning of all things. Creation and redemption, what we await for, are really the same thing. God willing life to be so that it will flourish. What can we say about redemption is that ultimately it's all about not just us, but all life having new life again, flourishing life. This is hard for us to imagine in today's world. It wasn't in the pre-modern era. It used to be the case that human communities knew that the land had claim on us, that we were from a place, that we were from a land, that we were from a certain agricultural niche, or that we were from a certain locale in this world. The land itself had its grips on our identity. But into modern colonialism, it became reversed. We humans started seeing ourselves as having claim to land. Land lost its enchantment. It became inert stuff, natural resources. And much worse, as we set out in the imperialistic age of colonialism and took hold of other lands and their resources, we identified indigenous people groups, not on the side of human culture, but on the side of the land and nature. And when you do that, it's very easy to displace native peoples because they're just part of the resources here. When you do that, it's very easy to participate in a global slave trade because these people are just objects, part of the natural resources for a more high sophisticated culture, so-called, and its use. The way we think about the land affects even how we think about other people and other communities. But the pre-modern mindset, thought of land as having claim on us, the land itself was teeming with purpose and value. It wasn't inert nature, it was in fact graced. You can still see vestiges of this in other cultures, not so much in America, but in other cultures. I once dated a girl whose father owned quite a bit of land in southern Illinois, and there were different plots in different areas, and I remember one of these plots being called the Back 40. You ever hear of a Back 40? Seems like everybody and their mother had a Back 40 at some point in their, time, in their life, where I'm from. It meant that there was the, the 40 acres back here, somewhere you used or didn't use or whatever, but it was yours. And you could do with it what you will. There's something about thinking about the land in terms of the back 40, that kind of makes it lose any sense of meaning and value except for what it can give me. You see, another culture that is not quite there is, is England. One thing I find completely uh, enchanting about England is that they still often name fields and name houses. My professor lived in Burgage Cottage. Isn't that nice? His address is not just a number and uh, a road, actually, you list the name of the house. I've tried to start that trend here. It's not catching on. My mother and father-in-law are trying to bring some of that back into their life. They have parcels of land that they farmed on for years, but now they bought um, a piece of property in southern Indiana in the woods, and they want it to be the place where the family gathers in between everybody, and they named it Kinsella Landing. I thought about that. 
Kinsella Landing. What's that mean? Well, one, it's their name, but it's where we all land to be together. Just the way we think about it, properties and lands and geographical locales, shows what we really believe about it. Is it something just for our use and ultimately abuse? Or is it something meant to be filled with grace and abounding joy? Well, not that naming things is the answer. It's a metaphor. And I find here in Leviticus a human metaphor, a metaphor for human, pardon me, responsibility. It teaches us something. The people of God were told that they must, every seven years, let the land have its breath. Being creatures ourselves who live within a wider world of creation, and it's incumbent upon us to use the skills that we have to let other creation breathe and not simply be choked on, choked out, and taken from nonstop. And what's more is it prefigures what we see coming in the redemption story. And that great image we'll be looking at at the end of the month where God makes his abode with creatures again in Revelation. And it's teeming with life. And there's healing amongst the nations. And there's not just one tree of life, but many trees. Because that is what God wants for all creation, for it to flourish once more. The land needs a break, too.